0: in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your
1: head. If the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. Can't
0: have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Hey
1: everybody, welcome back to It's Not Just In Your Head, a podcast by two therapists about uh, capitalism and economics and politics and how these things impact our interpersonal, social, emotional lives. Uh, I'm Max Golding LMFT and we have Harriet Fraud PhD here and uh, before we kick it off as we we, sometimes we forget to do this in the beginning just a big um, thanks to our uh, patrons first winter Sarah Turner Rebecca Johns Justin Harper Bandila MC Manga and now Evan Lee uh, and of course Liam who does our editing and social media Um, these are these are people who make the podcast kind of keep it going so thank you very much Indeed. And and for this uh, for this episode, we're going to talk about aging under capitalism. It's something that isn't talked about a whole lot in the sort of left independent media world. Um, aging, I think, part of that is that one of the very the very very sad um, facts about this is that as people age in our culture, they kind of become less and less visible, and I think societally less and less important and valuable to the capitalist system, and so. There's nothing to talk about, right? There's nothing to see. There's there's um, and it's a very kind of lonely, uh, sad phenomenon in my, in my view. But um, so I'm gonna pass it over to Harriet for anything you have to say on this, Harriet. We can kind of just go back and forth from there. So so what are, what are your thoughts on <clears throat> this aging under capitalism situation? What's this well, all about?
0: Aging under capitalism is like everything else in our nation, which is the most unequal nation of all the developed world is very unequal. Aging when you're rich is one thing. It can be dangerous. It's true. You might trust your children to take care of you, and they may take your money and not take care of you. That happens quite a bit. Um, most notably, the Aster case where the wealthy woman was under the conservatorship of her son who stole her money and impoverished her and treated her badly. And I have a dear friend who's a therapist whose left husband used to take care of the finances. And then when he died, she assigned it to her son. Her son doesn't particularly like her. He and his wife declared her senile and demented, had her institutionalized and took her money. Mm. So in a capitalist society of dollars like ours, where money is king, that happens to the rich. The poor don't have anything to steal. So in that way, the rich are not more fortunate because they can be mistreated by their conservators, whoever they may be, their children or the old, elegant old-age homes where they're left. Or their prey, wealthy old people are prey to a whole set of thieves who find out that they're old and alone and who have worked out things with judges and lawyers and old-age homes who get them declared demented, who institutionalize them, who take over their conservatorship and steal all their money. That's certainly, wherever you have money talking as loudly as it does in our society, you're going to have every form of abuse around money. So that can happen to the wealthy. But generally, if you are rich in an urban area, like New York City, where I happen to live. New York City, if you're rich, is a retirement community. You want to go to the opera if it's still open in spite of COVID or somewhere else. You call a car. They load you in your wheelchair or whatever aids you need, your walker, your your canes, you, into the back of the car and take you where you need to go. You get your food ordered in which you can from most elegant restaurants, you can buy in to expensive Medicare, medical care, because there are many, many exclusive doctors in New York who will not take Medicare. And there are even more therapists and mental health workers who will not take Medicare. In some fancy practices, you pay a million dollars a year and you also pay the doctors bills for your visits but you are promised an immediate attention an expert attention there are heart specialists that i know of in new york who do just that you sign up it's a million dollars a year and they really give you good attention and there are the reason that a lot of medicare a lot of doctors won't accept medicare is it doesn't pay as well and it's a whole lot of bureaucratic work the same thing is if you're a therapist if you're ocup- if you are operating independently the paper you have to work on and provide for medicare is extensive and the pay is about half of what you would get otherwise so that it's not desirable for a whole lot of practitioners and people who are rich don't have to go through medicare also In an urban center, if you want to have a friend over, if they're rich, they can take their car over, and your doorman can help them get into the elevator and get upstairs and unload their wheelchair. If you're poor, forget about it. Also, Social Security, which covers about 70 million elders in the United States, with some younger people on Social Security for other reasons, but the mass are elders. Social Security has gone up 1% between um, 2019 and 2021. Meanwhile, rent has gone up by 10 digits, minimum 10% all the way up to 90% in this city. And food costs have gone up double what the Social Security has gone up so that your food is limited. And if you live in a food desert that you can hobble to with your inadequate payment for your accommodations, then you're not going to get healthy, nutritious food, no less organic food, which you need. And as you're older, you need more care rather than less. And if you can't afford it, forget about it. If you want fresh air, you could sit outside your building, but if you're in a poor section, it may be dangerous to sit outside your building, particularly when you're an elder and not very good at self defense. And so we're talking about basic polar opposites for your fate, whether you have independent wealth or not. So that's mm-hmm. a very big divide. Yeah. I'm well, oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, just so, something that's been on my mind too since, um you know, I mentioned the last episode. My dad had just passed away and he'd been like homeless and all that. That, you know, that <clears throat> something that, so I walk by an old folks home uh most when I'm at my office and then I go to the grocery store for things and back. And, mm-hmm. and like one thing, and we've, in the tenants union, you know, we've worked with some folks. Um, who are actually under the the housing authority here, they're on like section eight, which for listeners is like a, it's like a voucher system that kind of mostly replaced public housing from the eighties to now it's, you know, it's like better than nothing, but it's a crappy system. But that uh, one thing that one commonality I've kind of noticed is like this sort of sense of um, loneliness and estrangement and alienation that it's probably not like totally universal as, as people get older, but, Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that, you know, you also mentioned in that last episode, I think he was saying like in, in Inuit culture, I don't know how much this is still done, but it'd be, you know, you hit a certain age and things aren't going well for you. And they like put you on some, some little boat or something and like send you off for the, for the tundra to take you or something like that. And I'm sure there's tons of different ways that, um, that this has been dealt with, uh, in cultures around the world, but in ours, like, what I what I think is probably a relative universal is because in capitalism this has become pretty internalized for all of us whether we think think of it consciously or not is that when people are not able to work and produce mm-hmm. um, money and a surplus and then therefore maybe provide for other people and and maybe climb some sort of um, socioeconomic ladder anymore, they just become kind of less important and less yes. wor- worthy to society. So that's that's one factor of it. But the we've talked in this podcast a lot about family and mental health and how because the family unit, the sort of illusory um sacred unit that I think, you know, the political right and conservatives tend to yes. talk about as if it's, you know, let's not talk about society, let's talk about the individual, but then they'll sort of also slip in there that they do believe in a collective and it's the family, that the family is ultimately responsible, the responsible collective unit, you know, that the parents take care of the kids and the, you take care of the grandparents and maybe there's some extended family thing going on. Um, But nowhere in this in American culture that I've seen, I mean, I see this in Mexican culture a lot. I think just generally like South American culture, most collectivistic cultures, Asian cultures, I'm sure throughout Africa, this is still very, very common although i'm <laughs> africa's very big and i'm not an expert but that um, very often there's a sort of multi-generational living situation in 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 a lot of cultures that kind of get it that they say okay so this person isn't going to be going to the factory and putting in really hard labor or maybe they're uh, maybe there's other kinds of labor that they're not going to be as suited for as they're aging but You know, you can get kind of like abuelita, the like grandma to be, she can be like cooking all day for everybody and she gets like a little room in the back or something like that. And we all hang out and watch TV or we do, we do things together, but that's, so that's very culturally specific. I think Mm -hmm. the norm is actually, you're just supposed to sort of like fade away. You know, you're just like, you're not, if you can't do a job and something that we consider useful, then well, fuck off. And And so I think there's probably a relatively collective experience for folks as they get older where it's like, well, where do I fit in? Well, they're not returning my calls anymore. I can't really go to that place anymore. This thing's getting harder. But then also part of it is because as precarity and debt and everything has increased for Americans at large, a lot of people, a lot of the younger people in families probably are actually too busy to be keeping up with, say, their grandparents or or other elders in their lives because they're actually really struggling. So I think there's just, there's a sort of multi, multiplex of, of kind of crappy variables that create the situation where, you know, older folks just get kind of pushed out and then start to feel alienated in a new way that wasn't quite there before, you know, because now there's, there's no longer the job situation. um, Family is getting kind of weirder. um, And then there's, you know, the various things, um, you know, mental and physical things that kind of come with the situation. So for me it's that's just like a sad you know I wish that the, we could somehow integrate some a different way that could just value um the elderly in in, in a more dignified way cuz that just sounds like that's a really shitty way for us to be treating elderly folks.
0: It certainly is. And what happens with a lot of families that are poor is they really can't afford to take care of grandma. Nobody's home.
1: Right. Right
0: except maybe the kids, particularly if the schools are closed. And grandma needs a lot of attention. And so they turn to nursing homes where people die by the dozens because they are in a situation where they're helpless and where, you know, recently Mario Cuomo, of the governor of New York, was exposed for having colluded with one of his big funders who owns a chain of nursing homes to disguise the mass death in this man's nursing homes as just deaths of old old age so that you can't afford to keep your elders at home, so you put them in a nursing home which Medicare pays for and where they get inferior care or they get dead. I mean, they die. And there was a very interesting experiment in New York City, which was so successful it was not repeated, that where a woman decided, I will try an experiment, and got funding from the government to set up a single-room occupancy hotel in which the individuals who were elders got their own little room but the dining facilities were in common. They had films, they had games, they had social workers there. The idea is connection is important for life. And they found that people's Medicare bills went down by about half because Mm. loneliness is equivalent to a heart condition. Mm. And it's also equivalent to the stress of cancer which is a big participant in cancer mm-hmm. and people's ailments were much less important when they were socially connected they could live longer and better because part of what max said is the loneliness and the the awareness that you are a burden and the more you can't do for yourself which is more for poor people who don't have the means to help do for themselves, or for rural people where it's harder, then the more you are abandoned by the society. Mm -hmm. And if you could set up good collective situations for elders, you would really help them and you would also help save money for the society. But the ideology of individualism is so rampant that they Mm -hmm. did not repeat that very successful experiment. And part of what has happened to a lot of elders is that they have crushing debt because they co-signed for their children Mm -hmm. in higher education, and their children can't pay. I mean, there's a cartoon that's kind of cute where these young people, a young couple have their suitcases packed, and they're ready to go, and they go to their parents' house, and the parents, they ring the bell, the parents have their suitcases packed, and the second generation says, Mom and Dad, hi, we're planning to live with you. To save money, and the parents say, Well, we were planning to live with you to save money <laughs> because both ends are crunched,
1: right?
0: And only the independently wealthy who are lucky enough to have an honest and compassionate caretaker another big if can manage mm. because it's there. If you don't make money in capitalism, you're thrown under the bus. Mm-hmm. And so that it's very hard and very lonely. Now, also, who gets to live a long time? I know I'm almost 80. Mm -hmm. I eat organic food. I exercise every day. I have a, Mm -hmm. a very nice place to live, a nice little apartment. I can go away sometimes. I have a very interesting life. I'm a therapist. I do podcasts, two of them, Capitalism. It's home, and with Max, it's not just in your head. And so I'm really feeling very vital. If I had, if I were abandoned and alone, and my daughter Tess Friedwolf and her husband Shane Knight are wonderfully connected with me as I are as I am with them, and so that I am connected, key to life. I have things that really excite and interest me in my mind that don't really take physical might. Mm -hmm. I research things I'm interested in. I have a career I can do. I'm not a gymnast, which would make it really hard if you're almost 80. And, you know, I live in New York city where everything is a block away. And if I wanted to, I could get delivery. And so that, My life is very different from someone, A, rural, but B, isolated and poor.
1: Yeah.
0: In a rental they can't afford, isolated in that rental, unable to socialize, unsafe to go outside and enjoy the outdoors because it's too dangerous. And so we have in old age what we have throughout our lives, this terrible inequality between the rich and the poor and the knowledge that if you're not making money, you could be thrown on the slag heap, whether you're a little defenseless child in a predatory family or whether you're an elder.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, even where I live in this apartment building, there's, um, I mean, I moved in here like six to seven months ago and next door to me, like I'm pointing, in my living room right now, like at the wall on the other side of the wall, it's been empty the entire time. And another neighbor in the building said that the guy has been in the hospital for like three months. So that was like nine months ago. And, and I don't know. So she was like, yeah, I don't, you know, the health health situation is pretty bad. I don't think he's going to make it. But I mean, I don't know if it's, um, if it's a Section 8 voucher, that somehow, if like, you know, state monies are just like paying for this room to stay empty, somebody thinks he's coming back if he has family or if he himself is just sitting on a pile of cash somehow, or maybe the landlord's just being very nice and saying no one has to pay rent. For I, I would I doubt, it. doubt yeah. it. It's very, very, very unlikely. So that's like the sad situation. And then, you know, below me and to the right, there's this woman who her daughter comes every day um, to take care of her. And they put a sort of padlock on the outside so she can't get out, which sounds really terrible but it's because you know she is no, she, she is, might
0: like, wander away
1: well that's the thing she's actually at that point you know where it's just very kind of cognitive issues and stuff and so but it's really sad you know when I, when I first moved into this sort of fire of like oh we're, I'm going to organize this building I'm moving into and oh realizing God, there are some people that are actually so kind of um gone yeah they're gone and 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 you know sometimes it's like you know the bit of money we have left for the public the public housing stuff for section eight or family members that luckily have enough to help them with rent somehow, or if there's social security or pension or if there's something, but it's, I mean, or it could just be massive debt. I was looking this up earlier and in, it was 1989. It was something like, um, actually I'll pull it up. I have it somewhere still, but it was something like, I think it was one fifth of, uh, uh, you know, people over 65, had, um, had serious debt and now it's like 50%. Mm-hmm. So, and that's just going up and also rates of bankruptcy. And then the main, it says, uh, three, three fifths of filers of bankruptcy cited medical expenses. So that's, you know, another, you know, that we don't have universal care. Um, two thirds of them, it was a sudden drop in income because all of a sudden, okay, I can't work anymore, but now what am I going to do? Right. So credit card debt or whatever kind of debt they can get there. Um, but over 75% of them, it was just just overall it's just unsustainable debt. So if you imagine like, you know, sometimes, uh I mean, I want to say that in the old days, but that's not really true. I mean, those 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 people who were beneficiaries of the sort of the New Deal coalition and this huge kind of welfare state social democracy thing that happened seventy whatever years ago, there was this assumption that, oh, I'm gonna inherit something from my parents. You know, there's right. gonna be like property and wealth and whatever. And obviously, yes, this includes like black Americans and all kinds of other people <clears throat> very much was like a white you know, white thing, for the most part, white kind of middle-class thing. Um, but that expectation, it seems like that's also kind of dying with the aging population, because if this amount of debt and bankruptcy is becoming normalized now, then this idea that, well, you're just going to, there's something waiting for you. Well, no, actually, it's that the people above you in age are not only like, are not only are they phasing out, and it's kind of this painful, sad process, but also like they're going into debt to the point where like, you're not going to get anything. Cause they're in neg- they're in the negative, they're in the red. Right. It's not like, you're not going to get a whole bunch of free shit now, like as, as what was thought. I mean, some people will, but, but a lot really aren't. And well, that's, that's just true. sort of the, that's just sort of the status, the status now too, you know, that, that, I think it's part of the, it's part of the sad. Cause also if we live in a capitalist society where we're told left and right that you, you know, it's, n- it's never said extremely explicitly, but your purpose in life is you, like, you go to school and the point of going to school is get a good job. You get a good job. You work your ass off for the majority of your life. Um, and also you have no, really no say in anything you do in your work unless I guess you're some kind of small business owner or a CEO or something. But then, so if your whole purpose is you're supposed to accumulate a whole bunch of wealth, uh, well, what are you supposed to do with it, especially if you have kids? Well, you're supposed to sort of pass it on. There's supposed to be some sort of legacy, right? Mm-hmm. The reality is the majority of people just going into massive debt and they have nothing to pass on they just like owe banks money
0: (laughs) that's right and also the problem is in addition that wealth used to be passed on particularly in the black community through a house but obama actually immiserated black people more than any other president before him for a long time as he paid back the bankers and not the people who had mortgages and couldn't pay. And so more black people proportionally lost their homes than Mm -hmm. any other group. And so that that form of wealth isn't there for that reason Mm -hmm. as well. And as the reasons Max said, another reason is when you're old and you can't pay your mortgage, the banks will give you a reverse mortgage. You can live there free and they will give you money and then your home reverts to the bank when you die. So the kids won't get it there either. So I'll the next about that. so the next generation who might have counted on a home and land, not only have parents indebted in part to pay for the kids' education and in part for every other reason that Americans are so woefully indebted mm. but also, if they can't live, then they can get a reverse mortgage, which mm. means you don't get any inheritance at all well
1: the well the, yeah so you didn't the home you grew up in presumably where you have all these memories and all these you know picture you know all these nostalgic little trinkets of uh, that contain the positivity of your life and your family and life story is just it's taken gone. by the bank That's a right, bank a bank owns that space now yeah.
0: And you're not going to have it. And, you know, instead of throwing the elderly on the flag heap, if you had collective housing for the elderly with nutritious food, all sorts of entertainment, and took oral histories of what it was like to live when they lived and give them some real historical purpose and importance in publishing their lives you would have an amazing history project of working-class history, which we don't hear much about. And so, you know, of course we could do these things. Other nations are much better at it, nations that have free medical care and free elder care. Mm -hmm. But as in every other aspect of mental health and treatment of the aging is just one of them, connection is the most important pillar of mental health. Connection with each other, facilitated in a joint living situation. Mm -hmm. Connection with the society through your oral histories and through the programs that are presented to you in the institution where you live. Mm -hmm. That there is, you know, this utter tragedy of the elderly who are abandoned because they can't make their own money mm-hmm. and because they're a burden on their kids and who are actually a rich resource for us
1: right.
0: in terms of what was it like to live during the Depression? What was it like to live during the New Deal? What was it, mm-hmm. you know, where were you right. then? What was it like to be a woman in, you know, right. 1920.
1: Yeah. And I think especially folks that have experienced more oppression and stuff, like it, it, in that older age, like for like black Americans, gay, lesbian, trans, you know, all, right. all, all the rest of it, Of like, what was it like to live through that? Right. Like, right. and then also, cause the thing is too, I think you would actually find a little bit more, well, not a little, bit, probably a lot more of like the racist stuff too, like elderly, white, it, it probably depends on who you're talking to or maybe how you interpret what they're saying. But but there's, and there's going to be some blind spots, you know, the, chi- the, the, the times have changed quite a bit, but there's going to be, there'd be just so many interesting stories. I mean, any way you look at it, right. It, there'd just be so many interesting stories, um, and so much wisdom and so much, e- even, even if you disagree, disagree with somebody, uh, on any number of grounds, right? I think there is this, this guy His like sort of nickname is the funky academic, uh, is, I forget his last name, his first name is Irami. I'm forgetting how to say his last name, but he has uh, like a YouTube uh, thing, and he he was saying this too. He actually thought thought that it'd be really important, especially for Black America, to have this like national program where once someone hits a certain age, it's like sixty or seventy something, that there's somebody that's it's their job to just go in with like high quality recording materials and and maybe like a video. I don't know if it's video or audio, but to take like an eight hour sort of autobiography from the person just tell your life story
0: mm-hmm. and that it
1: goes into like a national archive. I thought it was an amazing idea. And it's then a you great could idea. and then you could get it could be actually a requirement in like high schools, right? You hit, you know, sophomore, junior, senior in high school and you have to do a project and you go into the local archives in the library or whatever these would be stored and you, you know, maybe I don't know if it'd be for a history class or something, but to actually you know, you can get the last 70 years of history sort of anthropologically, like ethnographically, you can just get the data right there. You can just listen to a little sampling of people that lived in your community or in some, some city where some really important thing happened 50 years ago or something like that. I think it's, it's an incredible it, idea.
0: It's a great idea, and history students could be paid to do these interviews.
1: Right, 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 yeah. But,
0: you know, because you have a walking archive, of lived experience through the elderly, rather than right. having them isolated alone, sick, and dying
1: yeah. and it
0: is true that poor people die um, it's six years earlier than wealthier people because they get better right. medical care, better food, better nutrition, better dental care, all the things that keep us alive, better exercise, better dietary habits. All those things. But I think, you know, if you're talking about old age, you really can't talk about it in a monolithic way. Sure. Because people's lives are so divided by class first, then also by race, by gender, by ethnicity. And we do need, we need our history. We need it badly. Also, I just wanted to clarify an earlier point you made, Max, Mm -hmm. because the Inuit tradition, they didn't decide when you couldn't make it anymore because you Mm -hmm. were too old. Mm -hmm. The aging individual decided when she or he had really had enough, had enough Mm -hmm. of life, had enough of their own weakened body, and said goodbye and then went Mm -hmm. out on an ice floe and stayed there because. If you're freezing, then you you get comfortable after a while. You feel cold and you feel just sleepy. Yeah. And you say goodbye. That, And you're not segregated. Part of the problem with elder people is they're generally segregated. So younger people don't know that they're going to age. Yeah. And they don't know what goes along with it. Now, yeah. you know... I, um, I'm i almost 80, but never occurred to me when I was younger that I'd get old. Right, right. And it wasn't omnipresent through a grandmother living with me or through service to the elderly in a community, going and reading to people or writing their histories or any other way that I could interact with them as a group and... My parents were ashamed that they were getting old and so never discussed their waning physical capacities but Mm -hmm. covered for them because they were considered weakness. And so that the whole business of aging and death are totally repressed in our culture. We don't understand that death is... Art of our lives, just like if you buy beautiful flowers, mm-hmm. you're going to have to throw them out after a while because they're dead. Okay, <laughs> we have a turn and make the most of our turn, and then it'll be other people's turn. But we mm-hmm. never grow up with such an awareness, which is a denial of the life process or of weakening. What to do to prevent yourself from getting weaker? How to maintain your body, how to maintain your diet. This should be part of a basic health awareness that we don't have. And I know, you know, there are provisions in California. They have that wonderful program. A friend of mine is on the board and lives in one of the houses where they have housing that's constructed that you can move into. And Mm -hmm. your rent is a proportion of your income. Mm-hmm. And there are their applications are more than five thousand to one to every admission. Mm-hmm. Because at this point she works as an adjunct professor at mm-hmm. Berkeley. She also takes tours around historic places in Europe and the United States. And all of her jobs have dried up. And so she pays sixteen dollars mm-hmm. a month for a very nice little apartment. I mean it's mm-hmm. not palatial, she has a little tiny bedroom in a great, big, nice living room, dining room, kitchen area with lots of closet area. And she's paying $16 a month now. It was reduced from 30 because her income was reduced. And that makes yeah. a lot of sense because it's also a collective. Hmm. And they do have board meetings, but even where she is, she makes friends with everyone. But mm-hmm. And there's a coffee house downstairs so people can get coffee, but there aren't, there isn't a social program based on the necessity for connection, even Mm -hmm. in that best housing for elders and for people with disabilities Mm -hmm. in our nation, which is in California.
1: Something that, going back to something you just said though, too, on the like younger people being very, you know, since, since our culture doesn't value, the aging humans around us, there's this sort of, I don't know if you use the word segregation or not. I don't, I can't remember. Sorry, but there's a sort of separation or segregation to where I think capitalism very much thrives on this sort of youth culture. Youth yes. culture is not the best way to put it, but you know what I yes. mean? Like everybody in ads are like 20 years old and That's right. there's like techno music and everyone's like dancing and, and like they're like in the club and everyone's trying to have sex with each other. And it's just this like, it's just like they're trying to keep like sort of undergraduate college age people as like the enduring cultural um, norm. I mean, this is I think this right. is the criticism that the that the that the right has of the liberals these coastal elites that are just wasting their money and and just fucking each other and the, you know, just <laughs> right. like decadent you know that whole thing. But I think sometimes the more sort of orthodox cold marxist types are equally very critical of this of that whole thing because it's like it's this sort of mindless like you just just live once live for the moment live for the day um li- oh that advertisement says i need to get this new sort of facial cream or this whatever yeah let's just go buy more more crap um and not really think about anything beyond the next month year or 10 years but yeah i mean i think one if you, if we did have a more sort of intergenerationally integrated culture, there would be a lot more wisdom and clarity around like, you know, so I mean, one, just to make it personal, the, so my dad, the way my dad died when I talked to the coroner person, um, when she told me my, oh, my uncle told me, and then I had to call them cause I was next of kin, but you know, this, so he he had slumped over in this chair, his heart just sort of failed and he'd had heart problems for years. And, um, and I remember that the last time I got a checkup was maybe one to two years ago, and that I have higher cholesterol it was sort of it was in that sort of mid level where the doctor was like you know if it keeps going up and it's going to get into the high if it goes beyond that it's like you actually have serious problems so you're going to have to you know make some changes and we can talk about meds if you want but i you know i recommend you just change your diet and lifestyle a bit mm-hmm. and i hadn't really taken it that seriously and one thing that occurred to me the moment my dad died and i realized oh he just his heart just stopped working is I, I said, shit, I, need to, I haven't had a checkup in like a year right. I go to the doctor. And I went to the doctor and he's like, yeah, the cholesterol's higher than last time. And I was like, what do I do? What do I have to change? This was Friday. So over the last week, this is a little bit, admittedly, this is a bit of a trauma response I'm having to my dad's death. But it's also, this is the reality of if we had been in contact, if there wasn't this estrangement right. and such, and if I had more relationships with more people, say, over you know, 60, 70, 80 years old, I probably would take my health more seriously. My girlfriend takes her health extremely seriously because her dad has been in serious kind of phys- physical and cognitive decline over the last 10 years or so. So she's actually – I mean, she pendulums on an almost el- – like she has almost a hypochondriac high- thing with, like, gluten. Is it gluten? Is it fruit? Is it this kind of fruit? Is it strawberries? Like, she's – you know, but but – so it's a little bit too far, and she'll <laughs> – if she hears this, she'll smirk. She won't feel criticized, I promise, but I hope. <laughs> it's it's all no, totally. it's not a criticism. She know she knows I mean, she's actually extremely health conscious, but then it's like to that point of, well, should I get this protein powder or that protein powder, And she reads like every single ingredient for like twenty minutes at the store and stuff. but it in part, it's because she actually sees what happens as someone if they don't take care of their health. She's been seeing it happen in her own family, right? So I think there's a certain mindfulness of your health in a way that's also very kind of holistic and, and integrated and not just this like, um, this, this like tepid wellness discourse that keeps going around now. Um,
0: exactly. Which you maintain through all these expensive things going to the, you know, the retreat where you breathe and all that stuff, you know, there.
1: Right. Exactly. The commodified. Yeah. Exactly. In, in, it, instead it'd be a more organic thing of like you wake up in the morning and you're like, Oh, I'm feeling kind of stiff. I need to do some stretching. Oh, have exactly. I have water today. Have I things that like your grandparents usually would have just told you, right. They would have said, well, have you had enough water today or you haven't been outdoors much lately. Right. Like super common sense things mm-hmm. that before society became the way it was, these were very, very common sense things that just everyone was, um, the, you know, Like just humans generally naturally tend to, oh, well, you know, water, health, maybe you should do some exercise, right? Like you don't necessarily have to get a gym membership. You don't necessarily have to join this, like running a marathon every day or something like that. You just, oh, maybe you need some exercise. Maybe you need to get your blood flowing.
0: Also, if you see, I have a client whose father is now having heart problems. The father Mm -hmm. is sedentary, doesn't pay any attention to health or food. And is now paying the price. but our culture really conspires to deny this. You are not allowed if you're a model, you can't model in, you can't be a, a model in any ad except alcohol and tobacco ads. If you're above 25, mm-hmm. 25 is the limit. And mm-hmm. that's because they have to show everyone as youthful.
1: Yeah, and so right,
0: that right. if you're a model or in commercials, you won't get work except in the rare alcohol or tobacco ads once you're right. over 25. I also think that if you talk to the elders around you, you have a sense of what to watch out for. For example, right. my mother who had always had delusions of grandeur. (laughs) Once my father died, slipped into those delusions full time Mm -hmm. and helped me to become a therapist because I could see, whoa, delusion is bizarre. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have that as the alternative to my changing reality, changing it in my own mind and thinking that I'm always young, always gorgeous, always Mm. in the society's terms and had all these experiences I didn't have and so on, I'm authority on everything, Mm -hmm. that they're also, as well as an inspiration, they can also be a warning for us. Yeah. And the fact that they're segregated because they're not young and they're not totally fit Mm. and they're not as physically capable as the ads are they're segregated
1: you know i think there's even a a sort of collective delusionality that's been built into youth culture a bit too and this is maybe well this is going to sound critical but it's it's not it's not young people's fault like let's say late teenagers early 20s or whatever but i think because of the way capitalism and advertising has evolved it's installed this sort of like false righteousness like of like young like, cause there, there's a stereotype, you say, Oh, well young people think they know everything. Teenagers think they know everything. These college kids think they know everything or whatever. I, but I, I actually doubt that that's like a cultural universal. I think in part, it's because there's been such a saturation into the collective psyche that there is something actually very special and, and good about being like near, near the age of say 20 to 25 to 30, that you just, you have good judgment, you know, everything you have your shit together, um, you are sort of centered in, in the world as like, you know, the important sort of age range. And I just, cause again, for some reason, I think it just sells ads. Like, I don't know, younger people, you know, you're, maybe they're like more likely to be kind of like better look, you know, they look better in the ads or they're, yeah, we have uh, like, a I, I don't know. Gender. Right. I mean, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's something that, that it's so the way there almost becomes this weird narcissism I've, this is a little bit of an undeveloped thought here but but to where the youth culture thing is also it's narcissistic in the sense that it doesn't even need to look outside of itself like you don't need to even consult with anyone over the age of like 40 on anything because well i already you know I, I'll, I'll figure this out and even this concept of like adulting for millennials now that we we have this. Are you familiar with this, by the way? This this yeah. term or concept? Okay, this is this is going to blow your mind. So this is this is the thing where like boomers make fun of millennials because, oh, I'm adulting. I made it. I scheduled my appointment to go to the thing. This is something that millennials will say. I'm adulting. I'm adulting. It's this almost tongue in cheek admission of having no idea how to just be anywhere near a, a well adjusted adult. Where like previous generations were, um. I think like a lot more sort of thrown into like a sink or swim thing where like around the age of 20, it's like, now there's like 50 things that you had to do, all these like responsibilities you had to take care of. At least that's the stereotype. I don't think it's totally true. But now it's that millennials don't know how to like cook, drive, uh, talk to people face to face without a text message, et cetera, et cetera. So there's like all these sort of learning mechanisms that were eroded or removed so now it's oh well I looked it up online I watched a YouTube video now I know how to like uh you know like put a new hel- a new mattress into my bedroom or to put the shelves on the uh on the wall or how to fix my bicycle or something because there's no one in their lives to actually show them to teach them anything like this it's anyway this is I would imagine this probably sounds like a bizarre alienating concept and that's I think cuz it is and and maybe as a we should go in a minute. I actually have a client in 10 minutes, but uh, Jennifer Silva, who I think we're having on next week. Yes. This is a huge, this is a huge piece we could probably segue into with her because one thing she wrote about in her book was this, uh, a massive newer phenomenon for millennials in having like cut off their parents. So it, this is a really, a much more common phenomenon than it's ever been in the United mm-hmm. States where millennials have just stopped talking to their parents because they're like, well, my my mom's a narcissist. My dad's an alcoholic. We came from this impoverished background or they just don't get it or they're really invalidating or whatever. And so I'm just going to go make it on my own and I don't need to deal with these people anymore. Like that's actually totally new. Um, at least on the scale that it's, that it's yeah, and
0: like all things, it's dialectical on the one yeah. hand, parents present a lot of negative models as well as, Positive ones and often infantilize and insult their children who no longer want to be infantilized or insulted and are not capable of, and you hope millennials are, the kind of learning from criticism, learning from discussion. This is how that affected me. What were you, what were you thinking? The kind of compassionate inquiry and discussion that makes any relationship happen and be possible at any age. And I think for the younger generation, that is much, much more allowable. The idea of saying, what happened? What happened between us? Mm -hmm. What were you thinking? How were you feeling? Now, Mm -hmm. partly, younger people have lost the idea that economics and the political sphere influence their lives and their psychology and have looked only into their personal lives for everything. On the other hand, personal relationships need that kind of discussion, which is harder with people of a different generation who didn't value introspection or communication in their relationships. And when people married, it was kind of a life sentence until death do us part. And right. they might be emotionally or sexually divorced from each other, but they live together because it's embarrassing and shameful to get divorced. Whereas this generation, the majority get divorced or separated. Yeah. And it's all right that it doesn't work. So there's more of a chance because really connection is utterly crucial mm. to personal development, to aging, particularly not being segregated from other people. We have to remember the worst punishment is isolation. You know, that, that's yeah. a torture which other countries don't allow. Yeah. A solitary confinement. But that that is the most important thing for the elderly, too, to keep the elderly alive and valued.
1: Yeah. Um, we could go further with this, but, um, I know you have to go. I'm, I'm going to have to go. Do you have any, maybe final thoughts on this? And I can say a sentence or two and we can go.
0: Well, the final thought, I have two final thoughts. One is connection is the most required aspect of mental health at any age. Hmm. Two is in a capitalist system, anyone who can't produce wealth for the wealthy, for the already wealthy, is out of luck yeah and anyone without money is out of luck and that's cruel and inhumane and that's why i'm a socialist and no we have to change that
1: yeah um well my final thought based on that is i wish there were more 79 year old socialists out there because our the voting the political system would look a lot different um
0: <laughs> yeah
1: um yeah, I don't have. I think you you summed it up really well. I like that. I, yeah. I will just I'll just sum it up then, or not sum it up. I'll, I'll thank I'll everybody. Thank everybody for listening. And also, if anything from this uh, this episode resonated with you and you want to say something to us, you can email us at it's not just in your head at gmail There's also an anonymous form like a google form that we won't know who you are if you have something maybe more critical or private you don't want to reveal who you are you can leave us feedback that way in the show notes and if you want to become a patreon a supporter of the podcast you can go to patreon.com slash it's not just in your head and that's it
0: okay goodbye and we'll see you next week bye-bye okay.
1: Bye, everybody by the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head.
0: Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader over. Overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20% of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head, and Capitalism Hits Home are definitely complimentary.
1: And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it?
0: Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, HarrietFraud.com.